I want to talk to you tonight about something that's real important to you unless you stop sinning. Pastor, did you stop sinning last week while I was gone? No. I was actually here now. You didn't. Me, me too. I was trying to stop. And uh, take your Bibles and look at First Peter uh, tonight, chapter 2 and verse 11. I want you to notice it says this, First uh, Peter chapter 2 and verse 11, Behold, I beg you, as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lust, and listen to this phrase, abstain from fleshly lust which war against the soul. That's an interesting phrase, isn't it? You are in a war against your remaining sin, your indwelling sin, your fleshly lusts, your desires of the bad part of your flesh. And this is what he says, Beloved, I beg you, as sojourners and pilgrims, um, abstain from fleshly lusts, which, which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they observe glorify God in the day of visitation. But tonight I want to talk to you a little bit about five ways to war against sin. Uh, sometimes pastors use funny little phrases like five secrets to war against sin. I called Heidi, uh, one of our daughters today, talked to her about how church went and so forth. And and, and while I was talking to her, Kira, our granddaughter in the background said, I want to talk to Grandpa. I want to talk to Grandpa. So we talked, and I asked her questions. You ask children open-ended questions if you're a good grandpa. You don't ask them yes or no. You don't say, do you want Captain Crunch? They're going to go, yeah, I want Captain Crunch, of course. Uh, you say, what kind of Captain Crunch do you like? All right. So I asked her, what did you have for breakfast? She said, it's a secret. I can't tell you. I said, well, what did your mom have for breakfast? She said, it's a secret. I can't tell you. I said, hmm, what did you have for lunch? That's not a secret. She goes, no, that's, that's a secret. I can't tell you. So she had some fun with me for about, oh, a half an hour. Everything I asked, she said, I exaggerate. Yeah, it's a secret. I can't tell you. Well, tonight it's no secret. It's, um, these are open things in the Word of God, and, and, and they're things that have been really helpful to me. And there are so many different ways to war against fleshly lust or desires and so forth that we can talk about them. But I'll just give you five of them tonight that I think are helpful. I cluster these together. And you'll notice that these are things that over the years we've kind of taught on, and they, but they're put together in such a way tonight that I think this will be helpful to you. Five ways to war against sin. Before we jump into this, you know, let's not be thinking about the sins somebody else commits, but you don't. I mean, all of us have certain things we don't do. Like, you know, like if I said to you, I could go the rest of my life without eating broccoli. You wouldn't want to pat me on the back. I mean, I like broccoli. Okay. But I could just live without it. And unless you put cheese on it, unless it's bad for you, I don't like it. You know, it's like, I, I like broccoli, but I mean my, but, but I could go the rest of my life without eating. You shouldn't really pat me on the back and go, wow, you're just great. You don't eat broccoli. Right. Or, you know, for me, becoming drunken hasn't been a problem ever in my life. Uh, just something hasn't been in my life. I'm not really tempted in that area. And so tonight, if what you're hearing is a message for some other bad person, then you're wasting your time. So I just want to encourage you, don't... Would you think about you? What sins do you struggle with? What, what, are, you, what are your... You know, Jerry Bridges has a really... He's got a bunch of great books. One of them's called Respectable Sins. It's a great book, and it talks about the kinds of sins that we commit ourselves. It's like card-carrying faithful Christians that, you know, and, and those things that we kind of give ourselves a pass on while we're just abhorred that Planned Parenthood is doing the filthy, vile things they're doing, which they are, by the way. But we could just sit here all night and talk about how bad Planned Parenthood is, and I could get a real pep rally going on that, couldn't I? And I'm just as repulsed as you are, or more so. But Planned Parenthood isn't here tonight. It's just us chickens, right? It's us. So let's talk about, let's think about you, and what do you wrestle with? Come to the end of the day, you think, I wish I hadn't said that. I wish that I hadn't done that, or this is an area of my life that I need. Please, let's think now about this, the fleshly lusts that are warring against your soul, not against you know, somebody who's not here. Robert Murray McShane, a Scottish preacher uh, of, of years ago, said, I have resolved to be as holy as it is possible for a saved sinner to be. Isn't that a good aspiration? I want to be as holy 
as it is possible for a saved sinner to be. And Jonathan Edwards, an early American theologian and pastor, he said this. He had a series of resolutions, and, and he, one of them was resolved never to give over, not in the least to slacken my fight against my corruptions, no matter how unsuccessful I might be. And that's good, isn't it? I don't suppose that Jonathan Edwards had lots of glaring outward corruptions. But he was, because godly men and women are conscious of their own sin, he said, I am resolved never to give over, not in the least to slacken my fight against my corruptions, no matter how unsuccessful I might be. That's the spirit that we ought to have tonight. There are corruptions in me. There are besetting sins. There are indwelling sin. There's remaining sin. There is the fleshly lust that war against my soul, against your soul. Let's take aim at that. Think, try to think about what that is that you like to take aim very specifically tonight, if you can. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, there's no temptation that's taken us, but such as is common, and God has made a way of escape. So here are some of the ways of escape for us to fight against sin. And these are, and this, and, and the, the way that I have arranged this is that you think about what a sin is, and then you, you fight against sin, recognizing what it is. Does that make sense? So I'll show you this. First of all, what is sin? And then how to fight against it. First, sin is like independence from God. It, it, this is one of the things that sin is. Sin is saying, I'm independent from God. I don't need God. I can operate on my own. I'm, I'm independent. As a matter of fact, one of the words for sin, often used in the Bible, is iniquity. And the word means willful sin. It's the kind of sin. Why just say, I just, I'm okay on my own. I don't need anybody else, you know, telling me to do what to do. One of the tools that you can use to fight against sin is prayer. Prayer is just, it's an obvious acknowledgement of your dependence on the Lord. So again, remember that there are things that you, can't, that you can't wrestle down on your own. You have to ask God for help. So there are a number of different kinds of prayer. Jim May uh, lives up in... Uh, McHenry County, Illinois. He's a very gifted man. And I heard him once, many years ago, tell this story. He said that when he was a boy, his dad, who was a bit older man, and everybody around Tom called him Shorty. And Jim uh, was born late in his parents' life. So his mom was off working. He was home alone on the farm. He was home with his dad on the farm on this one particular day. And his dad said, I'm going to have to, I forget what he was going to do, go up and plow the field or something with the tractor. He said, so I need you to stay here. And I need you to just kind of keep an eye on things here. And I need you to stay out of trouble, he says. And he says, now come with me. I want to show you something. So he walked out through the barnyard, and there was an old garage, an old barn, a shed out there. And he opened the accordion doors on the shed, and he went inside, and he, he pulled an old box over to the middle of the shed. And he says, I want you to get up on that box. And so Jim says, okay. And he got up on the box, and he goes, I want you to look up overhead there. And he looked up overhead, and there was an old greasy rope hanging down. He said, I want you to get a hold of that rope right now. Give it a tug. So he took a hold of the rope and, and he gave it a tug and it was, it was a bell. bell began to ring. He goes, okay, now you know what to do in case you get in any trouble. Now don't you come out here and ring this bell unless you're in trouble. But if you get in any trouble, just come out here and get on that box. Reach up and get a hold of that bell and ring the bell. And when you, if I hear the bell ringing, I'll, be, I'll come. Well, he did great all morning. He kind of did what he was supposed to do. Toward afternoon, he got a little bit bored and he wondered if it would really work. So he went out to the old shed and he looked for a while and then he pulled the, he looked the box, got on the box, looked up at the rope. For, wasn't anything really bad going on, except he looked over at his dog, and he thought his dog might be in some trouble. There was a, he'd seen a garter snake earlier in the year. He said, maybe my dog's going to get bit by a snake. And he pulled the rope. Just seconds after he pulled the rope, he could hear the noise. His dad had the tractor in road gear, and he was coming up over the top of that hill. Smoke billowing out of the stack of the tractor. He's standing up to hold the thing in road gear and he's thundering down the hill with a concerned look on his face and he flies into the barnyard and he shuts the thing down and he jumps off and he says, what is it? What is it? <laughs> Jim said, I, nothing really. I just wanted to see if it would work. And he said, don't ever do that to me again. But don't you ever forget that if you need me, all you have to do is pull that rope one of the reasons we get ourselves in trouble is we're just trying to do things alone and we're just not asking for help. And we've just got to ask for help continuously to do what needs to be done. You're not going to overcome sin without help. And the way you get help is what? You pray. 
Different kinds of prayers that you can go through the Scriptures and you can find. For instance, if you were to look in Daniel chapter 9, Nehemiah chapter 1, Isaiah 6, you'd see these great men of God. Daniel, Nehemiah, Isaiah. You would see that they're praying in these passages in Daniel chapter 9. Beautiful prayer there. Rich prayer. Nehemiah 1 and Isaiah. What are they? These are all, we would say, they're great men of God. We would say that, right? We would say they're holy men. And their peers would acknowledge that they were holy men. But they wouldn't say that. You know what? When they prayed, they would just, these prayers, when you read them, they're like full of humility. And they're saying, I come from sinful people. And I live among sinful people. And I have a bent to sin. God, forgive me for all of this. This is the way we ought to go to the Lord in prayer when we need His help. It's not like I was like, look, every once in a while, you know, I get the chance to coach young men on different aspects of pastoral ministry, and some of them just don't need to know anything, you know, and it's, it's not that much fun. And years ago, when we wanted to learn fly fishing, I discovered a guy that was a master fly fisherman, Wes Cooper, and I said to my son Kyle, I want you to get a notebook. And I, want, I don't want you to go tell him what you know about fishing. I want you to ask him to tell you what he knows about fishing. Don't try to impress him about what you know about fishing. When you're in the presence of somebody who's experienced, just ask questions and take notes. So I said, take a little notebook and start writing stuff down. And most older men and women that have a quality of experience, they'll, when they see you're doing that, they'll just open their hearts. And that's what Wes Cooper did. He just opened his heart and he just told all these. And I still have my little notebook. And, and Wes Cooper eventually took Kyle to the river, waded in, showed him all the spots on the Muskegon River and the Pier Marquette and the pines, some of the other uh, great you know, tailwaters of Lake Michigan over West Michigan to go fly fishing because he asked and he was interested. And when the Lord sees that we are, have our notebook in hand and we're hungry and that. And so if you're struggling with sin, talk to the Lord a lot about it. Pray. Um, prayer of humility. Acknowledge your need. And, and then here's another kind of prayer. A prayer of resistance. In, in Ephesians 4.27, you know, it talks about that, that yielding ground, giving an advantage to Satan. And, and that's what we do sometimes when we sin. We give Satan kind of almost property that he can build on. And then he creates a stronghold. And then he reaches into our life. And there are people who really deeply believe that if you pray against that, that you literally pray, God... I pray that you take back that area that I yielded to Satan. And I, I believe that myself, and I have some experience with that. I would just suggest that you pray that. Go to Ephesians 4.27 and say, God, whatever I yielded to Satan, I ask you to take that ground back, and you own that ground. That's a way that you can pray against sin. There's the prayer of desperation. And many, many times in the Bible, it talks about just crying out to God. And sometimes you just need to desperately cry out to God like a little girl would cry out to her daddy if her hand was slammed in the car door. That's the way you need to pray sometimes. Just The scriptures are full of that. In Psalm 50 and verse 15, you know, cry it, call unto me in a day of trouble and I will answer you and you will glorify me. Call unto me in the day of trouble. I will answer you. Do you think you are a more compassionate father than the heavenly father? Of course you aren't. And if your little girl had her hand slammed in the door and she was crying out to you, wouldn't you stop what you were doing and go help her? Of course you would. So cry out to God. He's the best father ever. And then there's the prayer of continual confession. As an example, first, you know, first John 1, 7 through 9, talking about walking in the light means you walk in continual confession. That's what, you know, you that are seasoned saints, isn't that a nice euphemism? You that are seasoned saints that have walked with the Lord for a long time, you know that you don't, you know, just do a blanket, last, ask forgiveness. You have to continually walk in confession. If you've been married a long time, and many of you have been married a long time, happily married, I trust, that you know that you have to continually make things right with your mate. You have to continually seek forgiveness and keep things right. So with the Lord, these are the kind of prayers that we... So number one, see sin as independence from God and fight it with what? Prayer. Isn't that good? Amen. So don't forget that. Here's the second one. See sin as rebellion against God. Sin is, of course, in essence, it's disobedience. It's rebellion against God. And the key text really in the, all of Scripture, I think, here is Romans chapter 6. Take a look there. This is a bit of a flyover here. We've talked deeply about this in the past. But, so I'm just kind of reminding you and clustering this all together so that you can just go like a quick you know, arsenal and you can get to these things. But in, but in Romans 6, you have this section 6 and 7 and, and 8 about, uh, about sanctification. Remember when we talked through that? And, and, and let me show you four, four things about sin. Um, sin is rebellion against God, and you fight it with obedience. And this sounds almost too simple. 
Like, well, like it's almost like you, you, you say, um, uh, how do I stop sinning? Stop. Just don't do it. You're like, well, it's harder than that. Well, you'd be surprised. If you get a little experience under your belt, eventually you'll form good habits. It's really what the scriptures actually teach that. That you get yourself experienced by obeying God when you are disobeying him. So you say, well, I, I, I have trouble obeying God in that area where my husband irritates me. And I say these things, or my kids you know, do this, or, or my neighbor does that, and then I sin, or I'm in traffic, and I have this problem with my tongue, you know, and, and it just comes out. Well, okay, go on one trip and uh, get, from, get from point A to point B without saying that. And, and you have that experience, you know. And the scriptures actually teach that. You, here's what happens. You get temptations. You have, and they come from a lot of different places. Temptations can come from, you know, we could, we could use the old classical, the world, the flesh, and the devil, right? You have temptations all around us that are alluring us to things, you know. Then there's the, the flesh. You have temptations from within you. And then you have the satanic, demonic, you know, uh, possible uh, temptations there. So, they, they, so you're getting peppered with temptations all the time, right? Now, don't you think that God, the Holy Spirit, is faithful to also, with that, also to give you impulses to do good? It's kind of like the opposite of temptation. Do you know he does that, right? He gives you continuously impulses to do good. Remember what we always said, Doc Sweeting said at Moody, never resist a generous impulse. I like that. He, he, all, like, pay attention. All through the day, you'll get an impulse. If you know the Lord and the Holy Spirit's living in you, he's going to say, do this, don't do that. Say this, don't say that. I mean, right? Am I, am I right? You get that little inner voice. And you know that isn't just you. That's the, that's the law of God written in your heart. It's the Holy Spirit whispering in your ear. And, and so now here you have an impulse to do evil, which is called temptation, an impulse to do good from, from the Lord, and you decide which of those impulses you're going to obey. That's what Romans 6 is going to say. And here's what Romans 6 then goes on saying in this section in Romans 6. It says, whatever voice you obey, that's going to become habitual. Right? So how do you form a habit? I've lost more weight than most of you are. Probably a few times. I'm sorry. I know I'm, when I get that kind of silence, I know I'm making you uncomfortable. I don't mean to make you uncomfortable tonight. But here's what I've learned in my lifelong struggle to keep my weight in a healthy thing. And that is what I've learned. That it is possible to, it is, it's possible to retrain yourself to have, you know, habits that are good. It's also possible to break those again. But it, it really is possible to have, to, you know, and you, maybe you know this on, in your limited experience yourself, that, you know, for, I'll give you just a raw and silly example. But like you go to McDonald's and you always order the big fries. Probably a really bad idea, but you know you got them. So a number of years ago, I decided no more fries. That's it. No no more fries. It was a number of years ago, but anyway. So I said no more no more fries. So I just quit eating. I quit eating fries altogether. Didn't ever order them. Never never. I just never ordered fries when I go. If I went there, I'd get something. I just wouldn't order fries ever. I just like after a while, it just like they kind of went off the radar for me. It was kind of cute too because the. My, my family stopped ordering fries. Uh, part of that was because we went and called on Phil Venata, <laughs> guy in our church. This is one of the reasons why you want to come on Sunday night because you're not going to hear this other stuff if you, if you don't. Um, Phil Venata was a guy in our church, and he was, a, he was a very interesting guy. And I would go out and call on him at his house, and he had his own little place, a little barn out back. And you know, you'd go, you'd say to his wife, you know, hey, is Phil here? And he'd say, if he's here, he's out in the barn, you know. So out in the barn, we would go. Well, one day he had, you know, he had open heart surgery. <laughs> Seriously, split that boy open, top to bottom. And, 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 and so after the open. <laughs> After the open heart surgery, that'll get you off the fries right there. After the open heart surgery, I went and called on him. The kids were with me, and I just go and called on him. I go, how you doing? He's like, I'm fine. He starts, and he unbuttons his shirt, and he shows this big zipper of a, I mean, it looked like it took a, you know, like it took a reciprocal saw. I just like opened it. <laughs> I'm exaggerating again, but, but nonetheless, it's like, and so I go, oh, wow. So we drive away, and the kids go, how did that happen? I said, fries. They are no- they're like, no fries, no more fries. Well, after a while, you can't say, but you say, well, is that really in the Bible? Yeah, it really is. Look at, look at Romans 6. This is so powerful. Roman, it's very plain. It's very simple. When I was a kid, I read a lot of the British Keswick movement theology about this, and it got me all wigged out. It got me all confused. Probably not a really good idea. It's fun to read, but it's, it's not, not good. Just read this at its face value and see what it says. And I'll show you this, okay? So, first of all, the scriptures here are saying that sin is addictive and it's habit-forming. All right? Hear this. Sin is addictive and it's habit-forming. This is verses 16 
through 18. Do you not know to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey? You are that one, slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. Do you see that right there? Uh, God be thanked, though you were slaves of sin, you now obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. Having been set free from sin, you become slaves of righteousness. Or you could say slaves, you could say habitually righteous or habitually sinful, right? So sin is addictive and it's habit-forming, but godliness is also addictive and habit-forming, amen? Praise the Lord, that's great. Listen in 19 and 20, I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. One of my favorite phrases in the Bible. Let me explain this to to you in a way even you will understand. Yeah, I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. As you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, even so now, in the same way, present your members as slaves of righteousness, leading to holiness. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. And what fruit did you have then in those things of which you are now ashamed? The ends of those things is death. And so, do you get this? Sin is addictive and habit-forming, 16 and 18. Godliness is habit-forming, too. That's what it says in 19 and 20. Sin leads to shame and death, what I just read in verse 21. What fruit did you have in those things of which you are now ashamed? The end of those things is death. Am I right about that? You that have experience with sin know I'm right about that. What, what, like, why would you allow yourself to become addicted to habitual sin? Because that's going to lead to shame, that's going to lead to death. And you know that's right. But let's not stop there, because this is a positive passage. The other side is, obedience leads to more holiness, more freedom, and more end to everlasting life. That's what the next verse says. Do you see it? Now, verse 22, having been sent free from sin, having become slaves to God, we have our fruit unto holiness, and the end of that is everlasting life. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is everlasting life, is eternal life. Do you see how it just keeps going back and forth? It's antithesis. It's, it's, it's comparing the bondage to sin to actually the bondage of righteousness. Habitual sin and habitual righteousness. You can. There is a way of escape. You can change by the power of God. You pray and then you obey. You start to obey. Now, so for, every once in a while, I'll coach a young guy. Maybe he's talking to me. And in a common struggle that we have, uh, that, that, that to have a pure mind. And I will say to that young man, and we're going to have communion coming up here soon. And, and what I'd like you to do is, I'd like you to pray the week coming up to communion, God help me to have pure thoughts in my secret thought life and in my actions from communion to communion. Now, that's a long stretch for some young guys. But, but like I would say, let's at, shoot for from communion. And this is for girls, men, women too, anybody. It could be the area of like, what is that area where you have a word that you want to get out of your vocabulary because it doesn't belong there? Or maybe that, like, that, that ungoverned anger toward the way you talk to your mate. You know, we often do talk to our mates in ways that we don't talk to other people. And we're not polite and kind and loving. And maybe that was what you want to take aim at is like the law of kindness is supposed to be on her tongue. So the law of kindness should be on your tongue. Maybe it's just like you go from communion to communion and you talk nice to each other. And you speak with dignity and respect, a special kind of respect for the person that you've gotten used to kind of just, you know, not really treating very nice. And if the Holy Spirit's talking to you in that, so there's an area that you realize that becomes habitual. The sin becomes habitual. The righteousness becomes... Am I overdoing this? I mean, how could I? This is important, right? Do you get this? So, so you say, well, how do I start on that? Well, just get, get one obedience under your belt and then add another one to it. And then after a while, what happens is, you know, what we want is God to wave a magic wand over us and to make no effort whatsoever, like we won the, the holiness lottery or something. It's like, oh, I woke up holy, you know. Guess what? That's not what the Bible says. There are whole conferences that are built on that. And God is able to do anything, like thrust you forward. But what he will do is he will let you just labor toward, war toward holiness. Does that make sense? And so it is that, that you know, even in like the, the eating, you know, you have these big portions that you're used to eating them. And if you go, this is true, right? Just in, in the human terms, if you, if you reduce those portions, <laughs> you're looking at me going, Pastor, I don't believe you in this area. I, I get it. You, I might have that much credibility. I just have had experience both ways in this. I'm just saying, okay. But if you reduce those portions regularly, then what will happen is after a while, you'll, if you eat more than that, you'll be like, whoa, that's way too much. You just, right? I mean, it just becomes, 
more, and, and then that's what the Bible is actually teaching right here, is that sin, holiness gets easier when it becomes habitual. You become a slave to righteousness, and then you have holiness. And so anyway, go to work on that, and, and may God help you. Um, and then, so, so sin is independence from God. Sin is rebellion against God. Sin is independence from God. We, we, we war against independence with prayer, showing dependence on God. Sin is rebellion against God. We war against that by submission to God or obedience to God, especially habitual submission to God. Sin is idolatry, right? Idolatry is sin, but sin is a form of idolatry, right? Idolatry is a form of sin. We know that. But the Bible doesn't stop talking about idolatry back in the Old Testament where you had all those idols they were casting down. It it says in 1 John, little children, keep yourselves from idols, and the reference there really is to more than just a physical idol, but anything that takes the place of God. And so sin is idolatry. Now, this is a secret, if you will, that's super helpful that I will share with you. And that is that if you think like this, one of the ways that God's helped me in major, some major breakthrough areas in my life is to continuously see sin as idolatry. This is in God's place. And again, I'll just use one more example of eating and then I'll get off the subject because I know it's a little uncomfortable. But, but I, I remember as I, as I am learning this, I'm going through the line. I'm at Moody and Doc, uh, Dr. Hopkins was speaking and teaching us. And, and I was just thinking about that. I remember that he said some profound things from the scripture. And then we went down to eat right after that. I took a break and went down to eat. And we were going through this buffet line which is from the devil himself, the buffet line, you know. It's like, it's a buffet. That's not a good idea. So I'm going through the buffet line, and, I, and as I'm thinking about what he said, and he was talking about how sin is what we do when we're no longer satisfied with God. And I'm going through the buffet line. It's almost like I imagined Jesus was following me through the line. And then I would reach to get something, and, and it would be like he would very lovingly say, you know, am I not enough for you? Or am I satisfying you? Or do you have to drink, smoke, sleep with somebody who's not your wife, get angry, curse, whatever the stuff is that, God forbid, people do when they're no longer satisfied with God, you see? And, and that was super helpful to me. See idolatry as sin, as sin as idolatry. Romans 1 says that. It's not that everybody got involved in the worship of, you know, graven images in Romans chapter 1. He's listing all kinds. You know, if you read Romans 1... It doesn't just list heterosexual sin and homosexual sin. It lists a ton of different sins in Romans. Read it. It's, it almost like rings the, runs the gamut of sins in Romans chapter 1. And it says that they all come from, though I knew God, I didn't acknowledge him as God, but I began to get involved in idolatry. Do you see this? So if you're wrestling against sin, think, wait a minute. Like when you're struggling, like, do you have to say that word? Isn't Jesus enough for you? Is there some pleasure you're going to derive or some power that you're going to derive from saying that word you shouldn't say? Or like, like, let's say you're having a problem with anger and you go, that's the only way I get anything done around here. I have to get angry. Oh, I see what you're saying. God isn't powerful in your house, just your anger. Your anger is your God. You only think anger works with your kids. You don't believe that God can work in the hearts of your kids. You think you have to get angry. Then how are you not an idolater at that point? In what way are you not? An idol- your, your anger is evidence of your idolatry, and we can do that with any, any sin. It, it, like binge-watching huge bunch of television programs but not reading your Bible for a week. Well, you probably wouldn't say that was right. You'd say, yeah, what did I do? I, got, I put that program in the place of my fellowship with the Lord. I thought I was going to get more pleasure from that than I was going to get from the Lord. That's just idolatry. So I don't say this to oppress you, but this is to help set you free. When you see sin as idolatry, then what's the opposite of idolatry? It's worship. So fight sin with worship. Fight sin with prayer. Fight sin with obedience. Fight sin with worship. Um, Tim Keller writes on this so powerfully. If you can read anything Tim Keller writes. Tim Keller is probably like a, the C.S. Lewis of our day. He writes beautifully. And he said, he used this illustration. He said, like, imagine that you have an, an elderly aunt who has a whole bunch of costume jewelry. It's just worthless costume jewelry. And uh, imagine that she gives you this junk, and you thank her, and you take it, and you've got all this. And then one little piece appeals to your visual interest, and you happen to go have it appraised and discover that it is a priceless piece of jewelry. 
Don't you love stories like that? I, I wish I had an aunt like that right now. A priceless, just like all of a sudden, you are a multi-millionaire. Let's just pretend. Before, you, no, but wait a minute. No, no. As soon as you got possession, your aunt was a multimillionaire. You, as soon as you got possession, you were a multimillionaire. You just didn't know it until you had it appraised. All of a sudden, you're like, now I have this thing of great value. Tim Keller says that's worship in the church. Is that here we have this, this uh, pearl of great price, our Savior, Jesus, who's infinitely more satisfying than any sinful indulgence that we can imagine, but we don't realize it. It just costs him jurists. We don't even realize the value. And worship is saying, you are valuable. You are worthy. You are glorious. You do make me happy. You make me happier than anything. You satisfy me more than anything. Being with you is the, is the most important thing to me. Knowing that I'm right with you is the most important thing too. I honor you. I bless you. I adore you. We worship this morning just the the redeem, the the, um, the refuge Jesus. That's kind of what we did in the message. We're just like saying, when you think about it, we didn't tell you to do a bunch of things other than you should have wanted to get saved and walk with the Lord. But it was like, this is who Jesus is. Now let's go home. He's our refuge. We worship him for that. I have someone I can run to when people are pursuing me and I have no friends. I can turn to God. He's always going to be my refuge. That was just worship. That's what that is. And worship, and, and, and a passage, there are many, but one passage that you might want to jot down, I've taught on it many times, is 2 Corinthians 3.18. As you know, uh, we all with open face beholding as in a mirror, 2 Corinthians 3.18, we all with open face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are transformed into the same image from one level of glory or one degree of glory to another, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. So as you, what is that? Beholding the glory of God means you're valuing his worth. You're thinking about him. And this could be in song or it could be in posture. It could be in thought. You understand, here, here's the interesting thing about that too, is, is that God has given us things to stimulate our worship of him, but we tend to worship the things and not him. And then that's all messed up, right? So, so here, here's the way C.S. Lewis put it. Um, and this is in the screw tape letters. So you have to remember that the person speaking is the devil here. All right. When he says our father, he's talking about Satan. He's, this is a demon talking about Satan in the screw tape letters. Right. Here's what he says. He, this is uh, Wormwood uh, to his nephew. He, he says, never forget that what we're dealing with, with when we're dealing with any pleasure in its healthy and normal, satisfying form, we are, in a sense, on enemy territory. We are on the enemy's ground. You get it? The devil goes, the pleasures are all God's. We don't have any of our own. What we've got to do, we've got to distort those pleasures. So he goes on and he says, All the same, I know we have won many of soul through pleasure. All the same, it is his invention, not ours. He made the pleasures. All our research so far has not enabled us to produce one pleasure. All we can do is encourage humans to take the pleasures which our enemy, God, has produced at times or in ways or in degrees which he has forbidden. And ever, here's, here's what he says, this is classic. An ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure, that's the formula, he says. To get a man's soul and give him nothing in return. Ah, that's what gladdens the father's heart, this demon Wormwood says. Get it? So, so here, here you have uh, food. There, I, I broke my promise. Here you have food as a gift from God. When it's received as a gift from God, you actually pray and you thank that God gave you rain from heaven and food and good things. And this should, every meal should be a worship experience. That's why we pray before we, God, you're so good that you provided yet another meal. How tasty this is. How but then if we make the meal our God, that's sin. Right? So it is with everything. So it is with everything, even a good thing. And, and so, number, number one, sin is independence with God, so we fight it with prayer. Number two, sin is rebellion, should be seen as rebellion against God. We fight it with, with submission, with obedience, with continued obedience until it becomes habitual. Sin is idolatry. We fight it by, you know, gazing on his glory, by worshiping him. And sin is unbelief. Uh, Hebrews 3 and verse 12 says this, Take care, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief leading to you falling away from the living God. In, in a sense, nobody ever sins without a little bit of unbelief as being a part of that. You didn't really believe that Jesus was all satisfying or you wouldn't have done that, right? And so it is, you know, Piper, John Piper has a really good book uh, that's just uh, taken out of his... Um, Future Grace book, but it's, it's a, a, a little book they've published called Battling Unbelief. It's really helpful. 
And he's talking about how unbelief is at the root of all of our sin. This is like a little leaking in our belief. Well, how would you fight unbelief? Well, by meditating on the truth. Another way of saying this would be we sin when, when we listen to a voice of a lie. And so the way our life is supposed to work is that every day we're supposed to feed on God's truth and meditate on God's truth. And so he, is, uh, he wants to give us life more abundantly. And the way that that works is when the, the, through the bread of life, we, we feed on the bread of life and he gives us. So, so every day we should be saturating our, we should be nourishing ourselves with the bread of life, right? Satan has a counterfeit for everything God has. So he comes along with a daily, I believe he has a daily lie for you. I believe he has a, he, he knows your combination and he knows your sin patterns and he knows what lies to tell you and the ones you love. If you love your people in your life, you should know what lies your loved ones are vulnerable to and you should certainly know what lies you are vulnerable to. You should identify those lies and then speak the truth against them. And, 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 and what that's called is meditation on God's truth. Now, there are many places the scriptures all over teach this. And Psalm 1, of course, all of Colossians 3, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, you know, setting your mind on things above, not on things of earth, so forth. John 17, sanctifies through thy word, thy word is truth. Psalm 119.11, where can, how can a young man cleanse his ways by taking heed according to the word of God? But, but I love Psalm 19. I just love it. And I'm sure you do too. You know, the first part is it's a nature psalm. So we have that gorgeous flourish of God revealing himself through nature. And don't we just see that? Going to go to Camp Barakel this week. Look forward all year to a time at Barakel. a beautiful place. And, and I like it especially when a, new, a loon is nesting on Sheer Lake. And this week, a, a loon is nesting on Sheer Lake, which means that early in the morning and late at night, you get to hear that amazing kind of haunting call of the loon, which I always take as a special evidence of God's love for me because he knows I love it. And Hope, remember when we were up there getting ready to speak in chapels in the evening, early in the evening when the loons don't normally call. The sun was still pretty high up and we were going to go speak in chapel. And I took Hope up on the north end of the lake and we sat on a bridge and I was telling her what I was going to talk about. I told, the kids, I told her, I'm going to tell the kids um, to watch for evidence of God's love. And if you watch for it, you'll see it. When you're out in creation, you know, just like certain things that you, he knows you love them, he'll let you see them. I said, like for me, to call the loon, and right then <laughs> the loon calls out on Shamrock Lake. I'm like, see that? I was like, wow, it's pretty cool. And, 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 and we don't need to go to creation. God gave his son Jesus Christ. All I have to do is Rome, open up the Romans chapter 8, you know, and he loves you. So there you, there you have it. Um, Psalm 19 is, go out in creation and God is speaking and pouring forth his glory and revealing who he is. But then when you get into Psalm 19, it's almost like he's saying to that hunter guy that says, I don't go to church, I just go out and hunt and I'm closer to God there. Like, well, you know, some of you guys are hunters and fishermen and I know, I never make fun of that because that's real. My son-in-law, Austin, was telling about how he took a deer and how he went and he just had, he'd worked hard and he'd, he labored and he, you know, studied it. And he took that deer and, he, and when he, his impulse was just to kneel down and thank God that God had given him that game. That's honorable. That's good. And so, and so, um, so it is uh, that we, um, that, that we, um, uh, we go out in creation. And when we go out in creation, our hearts are tugged Godward. That should cause us to get into the word because I want to know more about him. Well, he's revealed himself specifically in his word. So when you so go, go ahead, go out in creation, or take the word out in creation. That's the best way to do it, and then read the word of God. Because if you want God to speak, open your Bible. He's talking all the time, and that's what Psalm 19 says. So then you read Psalm 19. The the, the, the law of the Lord is perfect. Uh, the, the, the testament of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The testament, you know, and it goes all, all talks about the Bible. And then it says, and these things should, in Psalm 19, they should be like honey to you. They should be like gold, like valuable. And then when it gets to the end, it kind of gets to the heart of that. And it starts to go through, um, go ahead and look at Psalm 19. And it starts to go through a, a progression towards sin that starts kind of mildly and ends with the great transgression. You're familiar with this. I'm repeating this, but um, in, in, in Psalm 19. And 
And it's, it says in verse 12, who can cleanse me from errors? So you have this little thing, that's oh, an error. Oops, it's kind of like baseball. Oops, I bobbled the ball. Oh, well. Cleanse me from secret faults. That gets worse. Now it's a, not just an error, it's a secret fault. Keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Oh, it's getting worse now. Now I'm just assuming God's going to, it's not, he doesn't care. Just, nobody cares about this. It's presumptuous. Then it, look at verse 13. Then let me not have, let them not have what? Dominion over me. Oh, so it moves from errors to faults to presumptuous sins to life dominating sins. Groan if you've had experience with this. Oh, yeah. The, and then it says it gets worse. Then I will be innocent of the, what? That's what you don't want. That great transgression, that, that meltdown of your life kinds of sins. People in the culture commonly say all sins are the same. Nobody really believes that. That's not true. Just, that's just nonsense. When people tell you all sins are the same, just say, look at them and go, my pastor says that's nonsense. It is nonsense. All sin, any sin, is enough sin to condemn us and we break the chain of holiness and we deserve to go to hell. Any sin. So I don't have the right to say, my sin doesn't matter. You're just some evil, wicked, abominable creature and my sin doesn't matter. I agree with all of that. But but let's not say that all sins are the same. The Bible doesn't teach that at all. The Bible talks about degrees of punishment. The, God, the Bible talks about degrees of reward. Our Savior Jesus himself would say, it'll be more tolerable for you in that day if you do this than you do that. He talked about those degrees. And you know very well that it is a sin to steal a pens from your office. But it is a different sin altogether to deal in baby body parts. Am I right? Well, of course I am. Unless the only people who don't believe that are people that have lost their good sense, like most of our nation has totally lost its, its, its moral moorings, and they've lost their good sense. They don't have the good sense to know that you don't just munch salad over dinner, sip wine, and talk about dealing in, in infant body parts. That's just vile. That's unbelievable. It's an egregious sin. And there is a progression of sexual sin, too. It gets like, oh, that just goes away until it gets really weird. Of course it does. Don't let somebody tell you that's not true. And so you have here the great transgression. So back, so then it says, let the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart, verse 14, be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Go back through Psalm 19 the other way. O Lord, it said, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. That would mean I can't have a big meltdown. I can't have a life dominating, a a great transgression. How would I keep from having a great transgression? I can't have life dominating sins. How would I keep from having life dominating sins? I can't have presumptuous sins. How can I keep from having presumptuous sins? I can't have secret sins. How do I keep from having secret sins? I can't have little errors. How do I keep from having little errors? I value the word of God. I value when God speaks. How do I value when God speaks? I go out and look at the sunrise. You see that? Isn't that beautiful? I just love that. So if you're struggling there, go out, look at the sunrise, listen to the loon call, watch the little hummingbird, watch your bird bath, take a walk in the neighborhood. Now go home, get your Bible out, begin to love your Bible and love the Lord behind your Bible. And then you're going to say things, much to be desired are they more than gold, yea, more than much fine gold, sweeter than honey in the honeycomb. You warning your servant and in keeping them, there is great reward. When you look at the Bible like that, so you see there you have Sin is unbelief. You fight it with with meditation. And I could go on and on about that. Do you doubt me? And then sin is spiritual adultery. This is the last one. Oh, and it should be. Okay, so I'll just, I'll quit. But look in James 4. You know, you you adulteresses, actually in the original language, it's you adulteresses. Not in the the Bible often translated, you adulterers and adulteresses. In the original language, it's just the female. You adulteresses. Because I think it's talking to the bride of Christ. You adulteresses, don't you know that friendship of the world is enmity against God and the spirit that I put in you lust to envy? In other words, the, the Holy Spirit is jealously yearning for your affection. Uh, that's, I think, James 4, 5, 4 and 5, right? 4, 4 and 5. He's, the spirit is jealously, jealously yearning for your affection. He wants you to love him. Hey, if you want to overcome sin, fall in love with Jesus. That's the thing. Affection for Christ. Because sin is spiritual adultery. So it, when, you're, when you're sinning, you're not loving Jesus. Chuck was moved away and he came home. 
um, not a long time ago, it was a few, a few years ago, came home. Wesley loves his brother. All of them do. Wes loves his brother. And, and he had, um, so Chuck, um, he had, uh, had, had come home at the time. He didn't have a place. I think he'd uh, uh, gone, he'd uh, gone down and laid down on, on his bed. And then and Wes had another place. And I noticed that Wes wasn't in his bed. I was like, well, that's weird. Where's Wes? I went looking for him. I couldn't find him anywhere. I'm like, he wasn't in his bed. And then I realized he was in Chuck's room. And he was sleeping on the floor because he wanted to be close to him. One of the best ways you can overcome sin is just really have affection for God and love him and stay really close to him. My dad sent me an email tonight. He's going on vacation. And he sent, a meal, he sent his email to everybody. It's like a... Uh, distribution, email distribution thing. And here's what he wrote at the end. It kind of touched my heart. It said something like this. It said, be careful. Stay close to the Lord. Jesus is coming soon. I guess that's what I would tell you. Be careful. Stay close to the Lord. Jesus is coming soon. Years ago, we had this, uh, we wanted to get a dog for the kids. And so we uh, asked a guy in the church, asked an old rabbit hunter guy in the church what kind of dog I should get for little kids. And he said, a little dog, maybe a beagle. They're small. They're not very smart. They're cute. Got big floppy ears. They're great for kids. You should go get them a beagle. He's an old guy in the church, and you should listen to old guys in the church. So I, I went looking for a beagle. We went up into the Amish country in Ohio, in the Holmes County, to get a special beagle. And we found one. It was an Amish farmer. I think his name was Miller or Yoder or Schwarzentrupper or something. And we bought the, the beagle from him. He's a great guy. $50. We got our own little beagle pup. It's adorable little thing. On the way home, we decided, what should we name him? Well... He was Amish, so we named him Yoder. So, so there was Yoder, and we brought him home, and he just ran. We went for a walk that night. Kyle and I went for a walk. Yoder was so little when we went for that walk that we were walking among the stubble of the corn, and he would trip over the stubble of the corn and just tumble. He was that small, just a tiny little pup. And we loved having him, and he grew up. And a few things happened, and we had to move from our country home. We had to move in town. And that was really sad. It's just what we had to do. So we moved into a nice subdivision and a nice home. But you couldn't let Yoda run around and, and tumble and, and take walks and run, stuff like that. We didn't know what to do. So we did what probably nobody should ever do. We, we put a stake out in the ground, like screwed it in the ground and hooked him to a chain out in the backyard. We, we tried to walk him and stuff, but after a while it got so you'd just look out there and There'd be the circle in the backyard where he ran. He couldn't go beyond the end of his chain and just wore the grass out. He lived his whole life in that little circle right there. Kids would go look at him out there. It's just pitiful. One morning, I took Kyle to breakfast, our oldest, and, and I said, well, what's going on in your heart? He goes, I want to move out in the country. I don't want to live in town anymore. And I said, well, the Lord has us in town, you know. He can have us move out in the country if he wants to. But if he doesn't, then we want to be content about living in town. He goes, well, I just really want to live in t- out in the country. So I said, well, you can tell the Lord that you want to live in the country. And if he wants you to live in the country, he can make it possible for you to live in the country. Or he can make you content with living in town, which is what I thought he would do. I went on a, a golf outing with the guys in the church on a Saturday morning. And I remember about 1 o'clock, I came back in and... Kyle was jumping up and down with a newspaper. That was back in the olden days when you had newspapers. And he was jumping up and down with a newspaper. And he goes, we found a place in the country. We found a place in the country. And I was a doubter. I'm a little skeptical. I'm like, wait, how much is it? He said, it's $400 a month. I'm like, there's got to be a hole. In the, you know, it's got to be for $400 a month. I said, well, we'll look at it. We go out and we look at it. It was arranged by the Lord. John Morgan, who's on the on the board, who was on the board at, at Grace uh, uh, College and Seminary in Winona Lake, Indiana, 
devout believer, was the superintendent of schools in, in that area, and he'd moved, and this was his home. And it was a beautiful old farmhouse on the end of a dead-end road at the base of a hill, a little creek running through the valley and a river down behind that, and, and just the most beautiful place. And when he met us and he saw that we were a large Christian family, he said, I just want you to have it. And we immediately signed a five-year lease for $400 a month. And it had free gas, it had a gas well on the property, so you had free heat. So we moved out in the country. It was an answer to an 11-year-old boy's prayer. And for four years, those boys and those girls just ran and tumbled, and Yoder was in heaven. <laughs> His floppy ears running around, gathering ticks, having a great time. He would run back. There was this, there was this, um, there was this stream on the place. It was a beautiful little burbling stream. He would just run and just dive. It was like his ears would go out like an umbrella. He would just dive in that water, and he would just jump around in that water. Then we would get out, the kids would say he would find a bank of mint, and he would just roll in the mint. It was almost like he had this little dog deodorizer habit thing that he would roll in the mint. Just run. We loved goulash. We ate a lot of goulash, which is cheap food. We had these big pans of it. I'm getting the no from Lois, but I'm too far into this. I'm going to have to finish. And so we have this big pan of goulash. We would never finish it, so then the dog knew he would get to eat the rest, so we would open the door, and here he would come, boom, boom, to the ears going like that. The kids would spoon a little bit of the goulash, so he'd get his head down, and they'd spoon the rest of it on top of him, and, you know, he would try to lick it off, and he'd eat that goulash. And then sometimes when he was all done, you could just tell his little belly was full, and he'd been running, and he was happy, and he didn't live on the chain anymore, and and he would just like flop over on his back and just lay there with his legs up in the air like he was the happiest dog in the world. And we loved that. So when eventually when Yoder died, we carried him back to the little creek, and we dug a hole in the mint. And we put him in there and we prayed one of the most sincere prayers I've ever seen my kids pray, thanking God for that little dog. And then we renamed the creek Yoder Creek after that. And to this day, that's the name of the creek in our family. Just wanted you to know that Satan hates you and he wants you to live on the end of a chain. He wants your whole life to be confined to a little tiny circle as long as the chain of his bondage in your life. But Jesus wants you to run free. Jesus wants you to live free, joyful, happy. His ways are right. His word is true. You can trust him. And I trust that God will give you grace to practice these things so that you would have a life of freedom from sin. Heavenly Father, thank you uh, tonight for these truths from your word that, that we've really tried out in our own lives. And I pray that you give us even a deeper experience with them. And these that have gathered here tonight would too. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You are dismissed.